twelve twenty seven. Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you for what he experienced, for what he was willing to accomplish, to accomplish your purpose so that we might be redeemed. Thank you, Lord, for drawing us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving to us that which we do not deserve. Thank you for removing your wrath and righteous judgment against us and placing it on your Son. And we pray, Lord, that we will have a greater knowledge of this and greater appreciation for what you've accomplished. In Christ's name, amen. In John 12, 27 to 33, there are several important questions that need to be answered that we will address. We'll explain the passage with some cross-references. In John 12, 27, Jesus, he says that his soul has become troubled. Why was his soul troubled? What was he about to experience? What is the purpose for which he came into the world. He says, this purpose I came to this hour. Not only into the world, but specifically this hour. What is the hour that he is about to experience? Further, in verse 28, we have him, after being troubled, we have him praying, Father, glorify your name. God is glorified in this circumstance. Then God does answer and says, both I've glorified it and will glorify it again. What does the Father mean when he says that in verse 29? The people, the crowd, the multitude, the large assembly there, they don't know and understand what actually is going on. But they should. We'll see why they should. And then Jesus teaches us in verse 30, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Why was it that the voice of the Father spoke for the sake of the people? When it wasn't really Christ that needed help, it was the people who needed help. Further, what is the judgment that is now upon the world and the ruler of the world? And who is this ruler of this world? The ruler of this world in verse 31. And lastly, 32 to 33, Jesus says that if he is lifted up, he's going to draw all to himself. What does it mean to be lifted up? What does it mean to draw? And who are the all that he is drawing? What is he talking about? And what is he accomplishing by his death? Verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. His soul is troubled. Internally, his inner man is full of anguish, trouble. He is thinking about what is about to happen, and he has this trouble. He has trouble thinking about what mistreatment he is about to experience. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Romans, Judas Iscariot, one of his own apostles, his own disciples are going to leave him 
They're going to scatter for a while temporarily. His own 12 or 11 of the 12 are going to be scattered and walk away and desert him. He's going to see also that the soldiers are going to torment him. They're going to crush him. They're going to beat him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to do all kinds of things like that against him. He's seeing that Herod and Pilate, wicked men, are going to say the word and order for his execution. He knows that the religious authorities of the day, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they're all against him and they are going to plot against him. He's going to see that the crowd of people, the crowd of people that witnessed many of his good deeds, his miraculous works, some of which are recorded here in this book, are about to be accomplished. He's going to see that this crowd, or at least some in the crowd, are going to turn against him and say, crucify him, crucify him. This is what all he's anticipating. But also, he's anticipating that all of the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins, for the innumerable people who are going to be saved, as innumerable as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore, a great multitude in heaven which no one could count, Revelation 7, 9. He's going to see that the wrath of God that we deserve is going to be transferred from us and placed on Him. That ominous, terrifying, dreadful wrath of God that we deserve will be placed on Him when He dies on the cross. For these reasons... He is troubled. He's troubled because of that. Now, he's not troubled in a sinful way. He's troubled in a good way because he's, he's got the genuine concern and genuine experience about what he's about to experience going to be placed on him. He is a real human being experiencing real emotions, but not sinful emotions, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. And he was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Yet he was troubled. Troubled on our behalf. And once he's troubled, notice what he does. In verse 27, he says, Father, save me from this hour. He says, shall, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Immediately, when he thinks about deliverance, he's not saying, Father, deliver me from what I am about to experience. Shall I say this? He, and this is a rhetorical question, meaning, I ask the question, but you know the obvious answer. I will not say, Father, save me from this hour. I know that trouble awaits, but this is a part of your will. This is a part of your purpose. You, part of your will and your purpose for me. Your will and purpose for me in this life. And that's why I've come to this hour, which is what he says in 27. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Here we have more confirmation in this passage from 27 to 36 that Jesus, when he says this hour, to be glorified in this hour, he's talking about his very death. He's not so focused on his resurrection, ascensions, uh, sessions, second coming, eternal state with all of us in worship and glory forever. He's not focused on that. This hour, the hour in which the Father is glorified, has to do with his death, with his suffering, with his persecution to death. This is what we saw in 1223. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He is glorified in this hour by His death on the cross. That's how He is glorified. So, in 27, He's not going to be delivered from it. He knows the purpose of God is to bring Him to this point of death. This should not surprise us. He's just confirming it reiterating the point because we are apt to forgetting it and rejecting it. He said earlier, keep our place here, he said in, er, in the earlier chapter, chapter 10, John 10, he knows he's going to die and he knows he came for the purpose 
of dying. John 10, 11. John 10, 11. We'll read 11 to 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life. He knows he's going to die. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. Because he is concerned about us, the sheep, he will lay down his life for us. 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. It's always been like this. That the Father ordained, purposed for the Son to come into the world to lay down His life for the sheep. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man, 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He taught the disciples he came to die, to give his life a ransom for many. Romans 4.25, Romans 4.25 says, He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. He was delivered up, that is delivered up or over onto the cross by the Romans, put on the cross for our transgressions and raised from the dead for our justification. This was always in the plan and purpose of God. And Christ, having that set before him, was absolutely determined not to avoid it, not to undermine it, not to contradict it, but to keep his face like flint straight ahead on the purpose of God in his life. What about us? Is suffering ordained for us too? Isn't Christ the head of the church and we are the body? If the head suffers, doesn't the body suffer? Of course. Of course the body suffers. Jesus, before people are converted, he tells his audience a great multitude in Luke 9.23, if any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. If we are to be Christians in the first place, one of the first things we have to hear before we are actually converted and become one of his disciples is that suffering is ordained for us. We must deny ourselves, deny our sins, Take up our cross daily, be willing to die as Christ is about to die, willing to die daily for Christ and follow him. Follow him faithfully. Even if others won't follow, we must follow. Luke 14. Luke 14. Luke 14, 25 to 35. Luke 14, 25 to 35. 1425. Now, great multitudes were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Could he have said it any more clearly? He says, to the great multitudes, because everyone wants to follow him, but they don't want to hear this part. The great, to the great multitudes, he told them that if you want to come to me, you have to hate 
all of those people mentioned in verse 26, and even your own life, even hate your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Further, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then, he teaches us by means of a couple of parables here that we ought to be at least as smart as these people. Okay? Who are they? Look at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Aren't we smarter than that? We do that in real life, right? We make sure that we're not fools in having a a half project, an incomplete project, right? Why don't we do that about the spiritual life? Verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough whether uh, with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We have to calculate the cost calculate whether we are going to be victorious or not and be determined to do that which is wise in the sight of God. If we don't, we are worthless. We are worthless just like tasteless salt. We are worthless to God, only worthy of punishment. So keep before us, just as Jesus calculated the cost, We must calculate the cost and be determined, fixed, resolved to endure whatever comes our way and not and not be surprised by it. Peter tells us first Peter chapter two, excuse me, first Peter chapter four, first Peter chapter four, 12 to 19, first Peter four, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is good. Further, we see in John 12, verse 28. 12, 28. What else does Jesus consider? Once he's troubled and understanding what afflictions he's about to experience, he not only is resolved with the purpose of God in his life, which is based on the Word of God, which is what we just saw. Verse 28 therefore next says, Father, glorify your name. 
What does he do? He prays. It's the Word of God and prayer. His hope was in the Word of God. That's where the purpose of God was expressed. Then he prays. He prays to the Father. That should also be our response. Often Jesus would pray to the Father. Often the righteous would pray to the Father. We should also pray to the Father. And what do we pray? What did he pray? Father, glorify your name. In prayer, asking God to be glorified. Not so much, God, deliver me, which is not wrong to pray, but that's not the focus. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, both in Christ and in us, glorify your name. God, whatever happens to me, you be glorified. You be exalted. You be honored. You be praised. You be thanked for what you are doing. This is the focus of Christ and should be our focus as well. A prayerful response should always be on our mind. As it was with Christ and others, it should be with us. In Ephesians 6.18, the apostle says, Pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says, Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. If we pray without ceasing and pray at all times in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that includes times of affliction or anticipated affliction. Let's also see an example of this in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. Acts chapter 16, 19. Acts chapter 16 and verse 19. The apostle, he has exercised or he has driven out of a slave girl a demon. He has removed a demon from a slave girl. The slave girl was basically a puppet in the hands of her puppeteers because they were using her to make money. Then Paul delivers her. And we now pick up the response to that. Paul did something good to the helpless slave girl who was demon-possessed and being used by her masters, her puppeteers, for making money for them against her and for their own selfish benefit. They do something good. And then this happens. Verse 19. 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What do they do? But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What do they do under affliction? What do they do when they were mistreated? They, these are victims, innocent men who did nothing wrong. They are beaten up. They are tortured. Put in, uh, then their feet are fastened in the stocks, and it's midnight. Probably they weren't fed very well either. Probably the prison is full of insects and rodents and smells, right? A stench there with other prisoners there, correct? Who probably haven't showered in a while and probably 
their urine and feces are all around somewhere nearby. Right? And what do they do? But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. When they are singing hymns of praise to God, when they're praying, are they not glorifying God? Is that not their focus? Of course it is. That is their focus, to glorify God. And we also note that God performed a miracle and saved the jailer and his household as a result of it in the subsequent passage. This is the result, the good result of their faithfulness to God. The glory of God should be our focus too. Not our circumstances, the glory of God. So then, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, let us do to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We do everything to the glory of God. Not to get attention, not to be delivered, nothing like that. The glory of God. Well, John 12, 28 God the Father answers. We know it's God the Father because Jesus prayed to the Father and the answer came, right? We know it is God the Father, though the people don't know exactly. They're supposed to know, they don't know. It was God the Father. And what does God the Father say in 28? I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. He glorified it and will glorify it again. How did he already glorify it? If we're talking specifically about the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ, it would be whatever he did in Christ to that point. He glorified his name through Christ. When Christ is glorified, when Christ preaches faithfully, when he preaches the gospel, then the Father is glorified. So God already, God the Father, glorified himself already through Christ, up to this point. He also says, we'll glorify it again. What are we talking about? We're talking about his death. According to verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And according to verses 32 and 33, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He would be glorified and the Father would be glorified. How? By the death of Christ. The death of Christ is the source of the glory of Christ. Remember, Galatians 6, 14 to 18. But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians chapter Six. It is the cross where the glory is. 29. The people, the crowd, says, The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it, were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, An angel has spoken to him. Now, it had thundered. An angel has spoken to him. It had thundered. Likely, it wasn't thunderous around at the time, okay? But they are saying it had thundered. Also, they didn't see an angel. They didn't hear an, uh, or, or see the glory of an angel appear to him or anything like that. And also, he says aloud, out loud to them, to everyone, so everyone could hear, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice answers him from heaven. It says, verse 28. So their answers here about thunder and angel don't match up with what actually happened. Correct? We know that to be the case. Do angels, however, to qualify, clarify, do angels actually speak to men sometimes? Yes, angels do, do, uh, do so. For example, the angel in Daniel chapter 9, angel Gabriel spoke to Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, 20 to 27. The angel Gabriel spoke to him. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, 
Acts chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. When the apostles were mistreated, it says the following. They were also imprisoned. Acts 5, 19 and 20. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, Go your way, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. That's an angel helping the apostles and telling them what they were supposed to do after they were released from jail. Acts chapter 10, verse 3. Acts 10, 3. Cornelius hears from an angel. Cornelius the Roman centurion soldier. Before his conversion, he hears the following. Acts 10, 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in to him and said to him, Cornelius, so forth, and gives him a word for Cornelius to obey. Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, verses 7 to 11, Peter the apostle. He also was persecuted, thrown into prison, and an angel appears to him. Acts 12, verse 7, and behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Angels do speak to men, but that's not what happened here. It was God the Father. But why would it be that the people thought it thundered, but then the thunder was not associated with God the Father? Certainly they heard a loud voice. They heard an ominous, threatening voice, but they did not associate with God that voice with God the Father. Probably because when people think of God, they don't want to think of a thunderous voice associated with God. They want to think of a sweet, small, soft, light, tender voice when they think of God. They don't want to think of God with a thunderous voice. They don't want to think of that which is thunderous, ominous, dangerous, dreadful, and associate that with God. They want nothing to do with it. And that's perhaps why they just said thunder and not God the Father. However, in the Bible, this thunderous voice of God is evident. It is evident. Example, the first one is in Job. Job 37. Job 37 1 to 5. Job 37, 1 to 5. Elihu, who is the one man who is not criticized by God in this book. Right? Elihu, one of the friends of Job, the youngest one of them all, not the three oldest ones, but the youngest one who spoke up later. Elihu is speaking in chapter 37. And he's not criticized or confronted by God and told to repent. So Elihu says this in 37 verse 1, 1 to 5. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. 
God thunders with his voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Job 40. Job 40. Now God speaks and God says. Let's actually start at verse 6. Job 40, verses 6 to 9. Job 40, 6 to 9. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like his? God says to Job. Job had the audacity to doubt God, and now God confronts Job's doubts with this statement. Can you thunder with a voice like his? Can you do what I can do? Are you so audacious that you would even consider accusing me of injustice? The answer should be no. Now, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 15. Revelation 1, 15. This is a description of Christ. Revelation 1, 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Her voice like the sound of many waters. When we see water rushing and gushing, and it is in a storm or even not, if it's after a storm and it's running and rushing down a mountainside, it sounds very loud, does it not? This is the voice of Christ. It's like that. Revelation 14, Revelation 14, 2. Revelation 14, 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, from heaven, a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So the voice of God, the father, the voice of thunder. And why thunder? To get our attention. In Exodus 19, didn't God appear to the people of Israel at Sinai with thunder, lightning, a storm, darkness, smoke, fire, earthquake? Why did he do that? So that people would pay attention, that they would wake up and pay attention to what God is about to say, what God is about to do. This is why God does it that way. He wants us to understand what he is about to say. So he speaks with thunder. Verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Why did God speak like this? And what did he say? Why did he say it? It wasn't for Jesus' benefit. Jesus didn't need it. He expressed a prayer, Father, glorify your name. And he did say, Father, save me. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He did say those words, but Jesus wasn't so weak and feeble. He wasn't so sick. He wasn't so uh, helpless and hopeless that he needed God in this way. Who needed God? Who needed God to speak with a thunderous voice, the people did. The people are needy. God the Father isn't needy. The Son of God is not needy. The Holy Spirit is not needy. The people are needy. It is wrong. It is audacious for us, we people, whether believers or unbelievers, to imply or to assert that God is Needy, needy, needful. He needs something from us when he does not need anything from us. What he wants from us is to believe in his son. But he doesn't need anything from us. John eleven forty one. 
11.41 to 42. John 11.41. And so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me, and I knew that you hear me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus pray in public? Not because he needs something. The people need something. They need to believe that the Father sent the Son. That's the purpose of the book of John. John 20, 30 and 31. John 20, 30 and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He wants us to believe in his Son. He doesn't need or want anything from our hands. Acts 17. Acts chapter 17, 24 to 25. Acts 17, 24 to 25. The Apostle Paul tells this to idolatrous people, to the idolatrous Athenians. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. Who believes that God is needful? Who believes that God needs our love? Who believes that God is sleepless, has many sleepless nights because we are not praying to him enough? We're not praising him enough. We're not giving things to him enough. We're not adoring him enough, glorifying him enough not saying how wonderful he is enough? Unbelievers, idolaters, according to the Bible, Acts 17, people who think God is needful are idolatrous people. They don't know who God truly is, who he really is. And of course, we know many people in our day conceive God as a needful God. He really needs our relationship. He really needs our friendship. He really needs our love and adoration. No, he doesn't. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are content and perfect as they are. They are eternal. We are finite. We are needful. He's not needful. He gives us life and breath and all things. The people... They needed to realize it in Jesus' day here in John 12. We also must realize that. If we conceive God as needful, we worship an idol. Now verse 31. John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. He says, now judgment is upon this world. Why is judgment now upon the world? Why now? Well, why now? Because they don't believe in the death of Christ. They refuse to believe in what the scripture says about the death of Christ. The world is judged now for their refusal to believe in the death of Christ. This should not be a new thing to us. John 3, John chapter 3 John 3, 16-21. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in, he who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe has been condemned already. Condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. When people don't believe in Jesus Christ, they hear of him and don't believe, a condemnation is already on their head. A sentence is already issued against them by the judge of heaven. He says in verse 18, He who does not believe has been judged already. Even verse 36, 336. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It says the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. Why does it remain? Because it's already there. It's going to stay there. John 3, 36. It was already there, and it will stay there for their refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. John 9, 39. John 9, 39. Why did Jesus come into the world? People like to say, Jesus loves you. Indiscriminately say, Jesus loves you. God loves you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Often the gospel is preached that way. But we see here in John 9, 39, Jesus said, For judgment... I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Jesus came into the world for judgment. To accomplish two goals, that those who do not see may see. That is the elect who are unbelievers, and then they become believers. They have a Stony heart, and then they have a tender heart. Those who do not see may see. And that those who see may become blind. That is, those who think they see, those who claim to see, because he says so in verse 41. 40 and 41. The Pharisees said to him, We are not blind to, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. If you claim not to be blind, you are blind and you're going to remain blind and receive the judgment of God. A distinction. So he came to judge the world in that way. He also came in John 12, 31 to judge or to cast out the ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of this world that he is casting out? And how is he casting out the ruler of the world? Who is the ruler and how is he casting him out? The ruler is the devil or Satan. And he's casting out the devil by dying on the cross for our sins. The ruler is the devil and he's casting him out by dying on the cross for our sins. How do we know it is the devil, and that we, or that he is cast out of the world. John 14, 30. John 14, verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Who is the ruler of the world who has nothing in him? John 16:11 Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged or condemned the ruler of this world has been condemned by the promise of God that Jesus would die on the cross we will see that in just a moment the ruler of this world who is the ruler of this world not in complete control by the way God's the ultimate supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the ruler of the world. But he has delegated some power for the devil to control the world and to blind the world. That's the way Jesus means it. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. In whose case... 
The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He says here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. It's Satan who blinds the unbelieving. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, verse 2. Ephesians 2, 2. He says, In which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air, he is the spirit who works in all disobedient people. Remember John 8:44, you are of your father the devil. All unbelievers belong to the devil their father until they are converted. Then they belong to God. Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. Ephesians 6:12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The fight is against world forces of this darkness, spiritual forces. 1 John, 1 John, 1 John, we read in 1 John chapter 3, Verse 8, 1 John 3, 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. John 12, why did he come to this hour? Why did he come into the world? He came for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil. John 4, verse 4. John 4, 4. I'm sorry, 1 John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in the world who controls the world? 1 John 5, 19. 1 John 5, 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, the devil, Satan. Jesus' death obliterates the power of Satan over us. Over us. I say us because of John 12, 32 to 33. John 12, 32 to 33. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. And what's he talking about? But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Firstly, let's establish that to be lifted up means to be crucified. To be lifted up means to be impaled on a cross. John 18, John 18, to 32, John 18, 28. Jesus is in the court of Pilate, Pilate the Roman authority, 18, 28. They led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Pilate, therefore, went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Pilate said, therefore, to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. 
the Jews, if they were to put someone to death, if they had the authority, and they acknowledge here to Pilate, we don't have authority under you Romans to put anybody to death. So that's why we're telling you about this Jesus so that you might put him to death. The Jews' way, typical way, was to stone to death. Yes, sometimes they put people on trees and hang them. They did that sometimes, but it was most often by stoning, and they didn't have the power to stone him to death. They tried unsuccessfully a a couple of times, but now they're saying, Pilate, you need to handle it, not us. Well, when the Romans execute a criminal that they deem to be a criminal, how do they do it? They crucify. They put them on a cross. They, they batter them, beat them up. They torture them first. And then they impale them. They nail them to a cross. They put their hands up like this, their feet on the cross. And they hammer nails into them so that they are hanging there. That's the way the Romans do it. And the Apostle John is saying it happened this way on purpose. Jesus predicted that it would happen this way on purpose. To be lifted up means to be put on the cross. And Moses in Numbers 21, 4 to 9, in Numbers 21, 4 to 9, Moses signified this. He predicted this and he preached it to the people when he put a serpent on the cross or a serpent on the pole in the book of Numbers chapter 21. What Moses preached, Jesus said he was coming to fulfill. John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, 14 and 15, Jesus himself was preaching to be lifted up means just like Moses lifted the serpent up on, on a pole in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That is what it means for Jesus to be lifted up. Not, if we just make our worship service very emotional, dim the lights, have a smoke screen, have loud music, attractive music, have attractive musicians, male and female, and females immodestly dressed, leading the people in worship, will draw people. If we have carnivals, if we have carnality, if we have fun and games at church, then that's going to draw people to Jesus. We need to lift up Jesus that way and draw people to Jesus. That's not what it means to lift up Jesus. That's a distortion of Scripture. To attempt to take fleshly, carnal means to attract people to come to church and to say, profess they believe in Jesus. That's not the way. That's not what it means to be lifted up here. To be lifted up is to have Jesus on the cross and for us to preach the cross so that people who are true to understanding this will believe in why he came into the world, to die on the cross. Also, we notice here, he'll draw all to himself. You've been noticing, perhaps, that in my reading, I've been saying all. Not all men or not all people. Some translations will say all people. Others that are trying to be more literal, they say all men. But in the original language, it does not say men. It does not say people. But obviously, from Scripture, we know that it means all the elect. Not every single man who ever lives, not every single person who ever lives will be drawn to believe in the cross of Christ. But it has to mean all the elect. That is, male and female, young or old, whether they live in one nation or in many nations, wherever they live. It doesn't matter their language. It doesn't matter how they dress. It doesn't matter about anything. The elect from around the world will be drawn to Christ. We know that everyone is not drawn to believe in the cross. And many people hear about the cross and reject it. And many others don't even even hear the gospel at all. And all of those who don't believe 
When they die, they perish forever. So who are the all here? They have to be all of the elect. Now, let's do a brief study of the word draw. The word draw. This word draw is rendered either draw or drag, something like that, in the various places in which it occurs in the Bible. It occurs in various places. Eight places, including our passage. The first one is John 6, 44. John 6, 44. We'll read 44 to 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. No one can come to Christ, he says, unless the Father draws him. Is this drawing a successful draw, or, it is, or is it something that is unsuccessful? Does it secure the purpose for which the drawing takes place or not? According to this passage, it does. It says, the Father draws him and will raise him up on the last day. They all, all the elect, will be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, believes in me, he says. This is a successful drawing of the Father, of the elect, to draw them to the Son, to believe in the Son. We also see in the book of John, John chapter 18, verse 10. John 18, verse 10. When Jesus was being arrested, his disciples were around him, And Simon Peter was there too. Simon Peter was one of them with the sword. Okay? Verse 10. Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Simon Peter drew the sword. That means that Simon was successful in drawing the sword and wielding it and striking the ear, the right ear of the high priest's slave. Right? Further, John 21. John 21, verse 6. John 21, 6. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. His disciples are fishing. And what do they do when they fish? 21, 6. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Haul it, haul it. Verse 11, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. In verse 11, they are able to draw it, draw it successfully, the net full of 153 Fish. Acts chapter 16, verse 19. We read that already. Acts 16, 19. Remember what it said? It says they dragged them. They dragged them or draw them. They hauled them away. Paul and Silas successfully, right? And mistreated them. Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21 and verse 30. 21 verse 30 says, And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The people successfully dragged Paul away from one place and forced him to go to another place. James 2 verse 6, the last example James 2.6, he's talking about the rich and powerful who mistreat the weak and poor. James 2.6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? They force you, drag you to go into court. In the same way here, God is the one 
who changes us and makes us and successfully conforms us to His will. He draws us from the way we were to the way we should be, and He causes us to believe in Christ. God does so by His power. He works in us to cause us to believe in why Jesus came into the world, to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus died for us. His death benefits us because it saves our soul. His death does not benefit all the others who never believe because they are being punished in hell. They are punished and getting what they deserve. We are not punished because what we deserve was placed on Christ. This is the doctrine of limited, definite, particular atonement. Why did Jesus die? He died specifically and definitely for us, his people, his elect, his church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.